Welcome to TWW, The Weekly Wheel, where each week the Dharma Wheel rolls and delivers you new content available anywhere at any time in your everyday life. We present a mindfulness service, which has three components. First, meditation. And then we meditate with sound through chanting. You can have your mind wander when you sit in silence, but it's very difficult to wander as you chant. You need to focus on the next character, on your breathing, on the next line. And if you pat yourself on the back too much or become too self-aware, you'll miss a line. And then lastly, we have something called active listening, where we lean into and really listen to the Dharma talk given by our senseis. You could think of silent meditation and sound meditation through chanting as preparatory to get our minds focused and open and clear so we can really listen clearly and really take in the Dharma. And in a sense, it perfumes the mind. The mind is slowly changed as it hears new points of view, new perspectives, and new approaches to dealing with life. It's set up much like an in-person service. It's led, moderated by multiple voices. So you get a variety of opinions, a variety of, of perspectives as you go on your journey. So I hope you will join us now for this mindfulness service presented to you by the people at The Weekly Wheel and the Orange County Buddhist Church. Thank you so much. We will now have seated meditation. Take a moment to see that your back is straight and centered with your shoulders relaxed. If you're in a chair, it's best to sit forward slightly rather than leaning on the chair back and keep your feet flat on the floor. Try keeping your eyes half open, resting the gaze gently downward, without focusing on anything in particular. In the same way, be open to whatever sounds are coming into your ears, whether from inside the room or outdoors. We are not trying to isolate ourselves from the world around us, but rather feel that we're part of that world. If you like, you may count your breaths from one to ten. Inhale deeply, let it all out. Try slowing down your rate of breathing relative to what it would be at other times. We are not trying to think about anything in particular or visualize anything. We simply watch our thoughts come and go.
Please put your hands together in gasho. Bow. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Namandabutsu. 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 You may stretch your legs and then please stand. We will now have our standing meditation session. Your upper body is in the same position as for sitting meditation. Straight head and spine, shoulders back, eyes half open, hands comfortably positioned in front. Legs should be shoulder width apart with knees slightly bent. Again, rock forward and backward and side to side to find your center. Standing meditation reminds us to take our meditation practice out into the world, waiting in line at the store, being stuck in traffic, going through TSA security at the airport. Over time, meditation becomes a practice for the body and mind that can be recalled when needed most in situations that may be merely annoying, perhaps frustrating, or even stressful. We will begin at the sound of the bell.
Please put your hands together in gasho and bow. Namo Amida Butz, Namo Amida Butz, Namo Amida Butz, Namo Amida Butz, Namo Amida Butz. Return to your seat or cushion. Sitting in this way, we might wonder what purpose we are achieving. Actually, there is no specific purpose. I think it's really to make us aware of what sitting is, what breathing is, standing is. What are these simple activities that we do most of the time without thinking about them at all? We'll begin our second sitting at the bell.
Please put your hands together in gasho. Bow. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Namandabutsu. 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 We will begin uh, sutra chanting. Sutra chanting is actually a portion of a sutra that we will chant. Uh, most sutras are far too long to be able to chant in one sitting. So for us, uh, we're usually chanting a verse out of a longer narrative or prose. And that's why uh, each line consists of perhaps four or five or seven characters. When we chant, we read from left to right, just like in English, and we move down the first column, and then we move to the second column, and so on. Open circles uh, represent bells uh, for the chant leader to ring. So we always begin a sutra chant with two bells. Whenever we change a section, we use one bell to kind of signal that we're changing uh, from one section to another. And then when you end a sutra chant, you always end with three bells. Each syllable here is written in Romanized characters, English characters. And each syllable here represents a kanji, a Chinese character. And it's written phonetically. It's the sound of the character. The vowels have the same pronunciation independent of location or their neighbor. So this is different from English. And the vowel sounds, uh, I've been told, resemble those in Spanish. So we have A, E, I, O, and U. And they're pronounced A, E, E, O, and U. And then uh, you'll see uh, italicized lines. Uh, those are leader lines that I chant alone. And you will also see underlines under some of the characters. And that means that rather than each character getting a single beat, an underlying character will get a beat and a half. And to kind of make up that little extra time, the next character in line will only get a half beat. And what you do is you don't really concern yourself too much about the meaning of what's being chanted. This isn't flashcards. We're not trying to learn something. This is a ritual. And so we chant together as a feeling of oneness. Don't worry too much about how you're doing. Be aware and mindful of each character. Uh, this is a form of meditation. Uh, rather than silent meditation, we're meditating through sound. So, you know, you see the character, you say it, you forget about it, you move on, and you say the next character. And over time, it becomes effortless, and you'll begin to memorize it uh, without realizing it. We will now chant Ju Gay. Yeah. 
Please put your hands together in gasho and bow. Namo Amida Buts, Namo Amida Buts, Namo Amida Buts, Namo Amida Buts, Namo Amida Buts. Group Karma. It's nothing personal. In December 2012, I was in Japan for second level minister ordination called Kyoshi. We practiced chanting, rituals, and etiquette, but we were also able to attend lectures on Buddhism by some of the leading Japanese Buddhist scholars. One of these lectures covered the four main teachings of Buddhism, interdependence, impermanence or anatman, karma, and transmigration. My notes from that day highlighted the fact that the first two were Buddhist and the second two were Indian. The professor said that the first two are uniquely Buddhist, while the second two predate Buddhism. Karma and transmigration were part of the spiritual background of the Buddhist time. Thus, the Buddha had to address these teachings within the Buddhist context of interdependence and impermanence. Oftentimes, the Buddha would use the traditional language of karma and transmigration in order to reinterpret them as something that is flowing in the here and now, rather than being fixed in the there and then. The problem is that all four of these teachings arrived in China at the same time, so they were all given equal emphasis, as they are in America. Compounding the problem is that karma is a very ancient concept with many different interpretations. In India, karma was often explained as if it was some sort of moral currency. In effect, you had a personal karma bank account. When you behaved well, your balance went up. And when you did not, then withdrawals were made. The goal was to just stay in the black whenever possible. This was intended as a metaphor, but became interpreted literally. In America, the notion of karma also has an overlay of Christian morals and ethics. I often hear this type of thinking within popular culture. For example, on TV, whenever someone gets into a car accident, they often attribute it to having bad karma, a sort of moral and ethical retribution system for previous bad acts. It is the universe getting even with you. From a Buddhist perspective, I would describe Buddhist karma as the circumstances that are created for you and your life. Some are of your own doing, but the majority is not. This is because another aspect of karma is that there are two kinds of karma. One is personal karma, and the other is group karma. When I hear discussions of karma, it is almost always about our personal karma. I think this is because Americans are very individualistic and we prize free will. We want to believe we can control our destiny. We can, but only up to a point. Personal karma is the way we treat others and the way we see the world. Through practice, we can develop new habits of behavior. We can also change the direction of our lives by simply associating with a different group of people. For example, the Buddhist Sangha is a perfect place to change the circumstances of our lives by developing new habits. But group karma is much different and is often ignored. Our group karma is when we were born, where we were born, the language we speak, and the country we live in. It also includes the circumstances of our upbringing. For example, the death of a loved one can change our circumstances in an instant. We cannot really behave our way out of these situations. They are just so much bigger than we are. 
For example, living through World War II would be such a defining event. We have to find another way to deal with group karma. We may not be able to behave our way out of these circumstances, but we can transcend them. This is possible due to the first two teachings of the Buddha that was listed above. Group karma is ultimately interdependent and impermanent. Bad times do not stand alone in an eternal isolation from reality itself. Even the bad things in our life are not fixed or permanent. We often focus on the transient nature of our youth and health, but bad things also fade due to the processes of interdependence and impermanence. To the American ear, personal karma is something positive, something we have control over and can change, while group karma sounds pessimistic and somewhat defeatist. But as Joseph Campbell says, that is not the only conclusion you could draw from group karma. Seen in a positive light, group karma means that you are not a victim. It is not your fault. Things did not go wrong because you simply did not try hard enough. Tara Brock, an American psychologist, author, and proponent of Buddhist meditation, observes that we choose guilt and self-blame in order to protect and preserve an imagined sense of self-control. We prefer to embrace personal karma as a form of self-help rather than transcending our group karma by accepting that we actually control in our lives is quite small. Personal karma is still worth some attention, but not at the expense of abandoning all hope of finding new meaning within the events of our lives. We may not be able to practice them away, but we can reimagine them as something deeply spiritual and transformative. Your circumstances may not change, but your appreciation of them does. Thank you very much. Namo Amidabuts. Namo Amidabuts. Namo Amidabuts. Reverend John Turner. Today's program was presented and produced by the Buddhist Education Center of Orange County Buddhist Church. This podcast is copyrighted 2023 by the Orange County Buddhist Church, Anaheim, California, all rights reserved.